If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey folks, this is Dr. Scott here with Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. We are back with a new episode and we're going to be concentrating this week on the trial of Amanda Knox. So we thought this was important to cover for a few reasons, some that we'll get into in the meat of the episode. But since this case spans nearly an eight-year period, I find that a lot of people don't really know the outcome, aren't really sure where it ended up. So I think that's really important to cover, but also the documentary on Netflix that came out in 2016 really interested people again. Right. And it was great. And so well done. And and I'm raising my hand as one of those, one of those people that uh, got the, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg when it actually happened. And then, failed to pay attention through the rest of the process. And understandably, because that's a very long time, but this is one of those cases that is truly over and over again, full of what the fuck moments where your jaw just drops open. And I'll, I'll tell you that one of the things that came up for me is that, and we've talked about this before, that the legal system in the U S has, incredible strengths and some frightening weaknesses. But all I'm thinking in this is thank God we're not in Italy. It's like the ultimate locked up abroad episode, but like with, or tried if, abroad. And, it, and if it wasn't tragic, if it wasn't incredibly dangerous, what could have happened to Amanda and anybody else, it would be hilarious. Like this, if it was a oh, played, if it was played as a, uh, uh, if it was played as a spoof on documentary now, right? You can't that's make what up it looks anything like. more outrageous when we get into all the ins and outs and what the investigators were thinking and trying to prove and the tactics. Exactly, just awful and astonishing as we've seen in so many of these American documentaries now, with the making a murder and the staircase and and all these false confessions, the innocent man. You know, it's. We're so, I feel like we're so clued into that now, but think about back in 2007. And if you're a 20 year old foreign exchange student, you have all the confidence in the world that a criminal justice system is going to work this way it's supposed to work. Which is also integral, an integral part of the story about Amanda as well. Right, right. So, another thing that's important about this particular case that we've talked about in some of our other subjects is that this is one that you can really go down the rabbit hole on. And I made particular effort to try and pick 
of all the things that I was researching to find the ones that were the most well-researched and by the, the writers and journalists. And I underline journalists for a reason that we'll come back and explore later. The people that are reputable because there's a lot of stuff out there that's not particularly, uh, truthful or it's exaggerated or it goes in the wrong direction. So first of all, if you haven't watched it, folks, I'm, I'm sure you probably have, if you're listening to us, watch the 90 minute documentary on Netflix. It is standalone, so well constructed and uh, the, the narrative is so well developed and it feels, it does not feel manipulative. It now doesn't. it doesn't feel manipulative. I'm not saying that it isn't, because it's media and an editor does amazing and editors and producers do amazing things. However, the, the, everything that I read in the research articles, particularly the Rolling Stone article, which is amazing, uh, everything backs up, uh, the, the documentary. So if you haven't watched it, it's really going to be worth your time. Yes. And I also read Raffaele Solacito's book, Honor Bound, My Journey to Hell and Back with Amanda Knox. I didn't get a chance to, you, you told me you were going to read that. How is that a, really, is it a long read or? It's a short read and it's a wonderful mix of factual timeline. So it streamlines and right. takes you through what can be a very confusing case and very emotional and raw in what he was experiencing. So it, I, I liked it. I didn't want a lot of um, background. I didn't need to know too much about him or who he was or where he came from. I just wanted to really hear his experience. Well, I'm, and I'm glad you said that because I'll tell you something that we'll get into later. I think that my commentary on this particular storyline is going to be more about the psychological underpinnings and motivations of everybody else that's involved in the case rather than Amanda Knox and rather than Raffaella. I felt the same way I, of like, sort of coming to the table with this. Yeah. I mean, there's some things that, that are, are clear and developmental and sort of stage of life for both of them. Right. Otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, as a mental health clinician, they get a clean bill of health, yep. except for I'm really worried about long-term effect of trauma. Sure. Given what they went through. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about Amanda and, and who she was and how she got there. So Amanda Knox grew up in Seattle. She's one of four girls. She has three younger sisters. And at this time, she was 20 years old and living with her, her mother and her stepfather. Her parents were divorced, even though you know, her father was very much in her life as well. And she had visited Italy as a teenager with her family on vacation and decided that she was going to be a foreign exchange student. So she ends up at 20 years old, landing in Italy, in Perugia, and starts her studies. Now, this all happened very soon after she gets there. Like, she's only been there three weeks. Right. And and building on what you're saying as far as how, how she got there... All of the interviews with her family, all of the in-depth research into Amanda's background shows that she had sort of an idyllic background raised with a, a great deal of, of love and support, even from a separated family or, you know, separated parents. However, everyone that knows her talks about that she has a real sense of innocence. Sure. Like she is an outdoors girl who was a little bit heavy set, 
I'm not really a makeup wear. She's an extrovert. But as her father says, incredibly book smart and not street smart at all. That is one of the things that that comes up over and over again in the descriptions of her. And that's not a negative. I'm no, not sitting not here all. saying that as a negative. And here is someone that even later on in her interview says, I made a decision that it was time for me to wake up a bit and to get out on my own and completely change my environment, challenge myself. So, you know, as a parent, I think I would have mixed feelings about that, Mm -hmm. but you know, she's at the age where she's ready to do it. Sure. She goes to Perugia, finds out that the, some, the, the, year abroad academic is basically bullshit. Right. It's basically you show up to class. It it was nothing. It was not a challenge for someone who actually was incredibly smart. Right. So she's, what am I going to do to fill my time? Got to get a job. Right. Hang out, find some friends. Um, and so she, she ends up running a room from these two Italian girls in this apartment. There's already a third roommate that's uh, a British student. And so the four of them, live in this apartment. The The two Italian girls live on the very top floor. And then Amanda and Meredith Kircher, who's the British student, who is the victim in this case, live in sort of the middle floor. And then there's some guys that live down below. And the Italian roommates, it should be noted that they were about nine to 10 years older. These are women in their, you know, late twenties in committed relationships with boyfriends. They both held regular jobs. So on the top story, you have these, you know, settling in young adults. Then on the middle story, you have students abroad and then below. I don't even know anything about the guys below, but that was a very, you know, so she and Meredith yeah. were going to be the ones that really, if they were going to hang out would they would be the ones that had things in common. Right. Maybe. Right. So just, I'm going to review some of the key players in the case. We already talked about Meredith Kircher. She was 22 years old. And like I said, they maybe knew each other three weeks, but had hung out and done some stuff already. Uh, Patrick Lamumba, he was the owner of a local pub where Amanda ended up getting a job serving, uh, waitressing and a little bit of bartending. Raffaele Solicito was... Uh, Amanda's boyfriend of about five days when this all happened. So they had just recently met, but obviously we're spending tons of time together then. Investigator and lead prosecutor Giuliano Mignini is going to be a very prominent character that we talk about today, but he essentially took the lead on this investigation. And then Rudy Gaudet is the individual who ended up getting convicted for the murder and was a very, I don't even want to say loose associate. He sort of knew people that Amanda and her roommate. He was known in the neighborhood. He was just known in the neighborhood. He was also known in the neighborhood to be the guy that breaks into your apartment when you're not there. Yes. By throwing a rock through the window. Known. Had the reputation for being known, Very known. The night of the crime was... November 2nd, 2007. That night, Amanda and her boyfriend, Raffaele, spent the night together. She was at his apartment, and they started watching a movie. And Amanda gets a text from her boss, Patrick, and he says, don't need you to come into work tonight. She texts back something to the effect of, 
that's great. I will see you later. See Have you a later. good night. Yeah. And is happy that she then gets to stay with her boyfriend. So they make dinner. They stay there finishing watching a movie and then spend the night together. So the next morning, Amanda actually goes back to her apartment to pick up a mop because he had a leak in his kitchen. And she says, I'll go home, take a shower, grab a mop, come back, and, you know, they'll go about their day. So she gets home and realizes that the front door is wide open, which didn't trouble her too much because it was a really sort of faulty latch. And she thought, well, maybe someone ran to the store real quick or whatever. And the the two Italian roommates were actually out of town, and uh, Meredith had been in town. So... She goes in, goes to take a shower, notices a few drops of blood in the sink and some blood on the bath mat, but nothing that would be super unusual for girls who shave their legs or or menstrual have, blood. have menstrual have periods. Yeah. yeah. So again, not super alarming. She also notices in one of the bathrooms that there's feces in one of the toilets still. Nobody flushed. And it, she said that really kind of gave her the creeps because that was pretty unusual. Uh, there is an, an interesting side note to that particular thing, not to dwell on fecal move, movements, <laughs> but I thought this was fascinating that she says in a later interview that when they talk about, when they actually had time to go into depth about the relationships, you know, she met Meredith sort of as a, you know, just synchronicity. She was happened to be at a bulletin board where Meredith was posting that she was looking for a roommate. She started a conversation with her. She said, we'll come see the apartment. And it was a done deal. So what she found out very quickly though, was that she really didn't have anything in common with the two older Italian women that lived above them. And she and Meredith she thought that she and Meredith would have more in common, but they really didn't. They started having um, not conflicts, but just realizing, oh, well, this is going to be more of a roommate thing. It's right, and like w- Amanda's a little more messy, and right. And in fact, like even Amanda comes up in one of the interviews and says, you know, they kind of got on me about I am a messy person or, and like pulling her weight around the right. Apartment. And because she comes from sort of a you know uh, upper Northwest American. Uh, in community that really is very environmentally mm-hmm. uh, based, her automatic thought was, "Oh, we need to conserve water here." Not realizing that in Italy, you know, there there's tons of water. There's not a drought, so she would have the habit of not flushing the toilet every once in a while, which is why she was so hyper aware of the toilet not being flushed because she, they were usually getting on to her oh, about it. So that's why. That's I wish they had given that information more right. in the documentary. But that even highlights more how she turns and goes, yeah, I noticed nobody doesn't flush because she'd already been corrected on it. Right. right? That's that's pretty important, you know, to find one of those uh, moments in time where you remember something for a very specific reason is really important to an investigation. Absolutely. Because then you know, oh, my memories aren't filling themselves in. I remember for this specific reason. Right. Which that and that specific reason may have fallen to the wayside. And been obscured by mm-hmm. the big events that are going mm-hmm. on. 
Yeah. So at, at this point, you know, these, these sort of weird feelings are coming up, even though she doesn't really know what's going on. And they, some of it can be explained away. And then she goes and knocks on Meredith's door, which there's no response and it's locked, which also is unusual unusual for her. So she ends up going back to her boyfriend's apartment and after a little while is like, Hey, do you think this is weird? This is what was happening back at the house. Cause no one comes home. You know, it's not like someone was just out at the store getting mail. And he says, yeah, let's go check it out. I think he actually called his sister who was in the state police. And she's like, yeah, go, go back to the house, check it out. And, uh, once he described the scene to her, she's like, definitely call the so police. So just another pin Yep. that if these two people were involved in the murder, so right. like the, what you're going to call your relative that's in the state police, like right. they would, they're almost, they almost end up trying to paint them as masterminds of manipulation and manipulating this entire scene. Oh yeah. That yeah. is so laughable. And his sister from how he described her in the book is just this total badass. you know, Italian woman doesn't take anyone's shit, has climbed the ranks, you know, just very proud of her career in state law enforcement. And he trusts her above everyone else. You right. Know, who's going to be, who is my person to call? And she absolutely said, you know, you need to call the police and have them come over and check this out. It sounds suspicious enough. And this is where it all goes bad. This is where it all goes bad. So they are hanging out and waiting for the police to get there. And some other police officers come up and state that they were at the neighbor's house responding to these two found cell phones in the yard. And Amanda realizes that those are Meredith's cell phones. And I think there was even a missed call from Amanda that morning because she tried calling her after she wasn't answering the door. Right. So these uh, local cops that were from Perugia say, well, let's go in and take a look at this, you know, supposed uh, suspicious circumstances that you guys called into the state police. So once again, let's define these were not even the city police, they were what's called male police, but they were to investigate electronics fraud and right. Hence the, yeah. So they're, they're there. And, and I, I mean, I could see that any cops show up and you're like, Hey, check this out. We're waiting for the cops. Do you want to come in and see how weird this is? Um, but it's one of those really key moments where if the other cops had showed up, Maybe it would have been a completely different investigation because Maybe. they're most more seasoned and you know big murder investigations. But we don't even know it's murder investigation at this point. And 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 also, as you can see clearly from the footage, when the the quote unquote real cops come in, they completely contaminate the scene. Yeah. Like anybody that's watched an episode of CSI can <laughs> see that these guys look like Keystone cops. Yeah. They're like trudging in and out throwing stuff around, like touching everything. Nobody's got gloves on kicking in glass doors. Some, (laughs) some lard ass cop can't get the door open. So she kicks through the glass on the front, completely contaminating the time crime scene and then reaches through to open the door. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's unbelievable. I should also note that uh, Amanda and Raffaele had found that a rock was thrown through the window of the Italian girl's bedroom window. Um, and so there was this sort of point of entry, if you will. And 
nothing of value was taken. You know, laptops were still sitting out, jewelry and all of that. So that, that made it even seem more strange to them. So these male cops, um, male, (laughs) M-A-I-L, um, go in, have a look around, see that Meredith's door is locked and no one's responding. And then by then the Italian roommates get home they have their boyfriends with them or some of the guys from downstairs. I forget if, if they were dating. Um, I think Meredith was dating one of the guys from downstairs. Um, but they're all in there and Amanda's on the phone with her mom. She's like, mom, this is what's going on. And they can't get the door open. So one of the guys from downstairs actually kicks it open and Amanda, the bedroom door, the bedroom door, Meredith's bedroom door. And so Amanda is on the phone with her mom when this is happening and she can hear the gasps and the cries and someone saying something about a foot. Right. So blood, blood, a foot, a foot. And so she's relaying this to her mom and, you know, ends up hanging up so she can see what's going on. But that's when they find Meredith and Meredith is in her bedroom. It's a very bloody crime scene. There are blood on the floor, on the walls, on furniture. And she's on the floor half clothed, um, with a comforter thrown over her and her foot was just sort of sticking out from underneath that. Which by the way, and we'll circle back around to this. Very important to note that a comforter was thrown on top of her. That is for the profile of a killer. That's a very important, um, aspect, but we'll, we'll yeah, talk about that a little bit is. later. Um, so, you know, at this point, obviously the, the, the male police get everyone out, realize uh, the totality of what's going on and secure the crime scene. Um, like we said before, it's not very secure after that. Air quotes. Yeah. Air quotes. So Meredith's manner of death. So she had some very deep wounds to her throat. Um, however, there were other injuries on her, like little sort of knife nicks around her chin as if someone was, you know, kind of teasing her with a knife, if you will, or sort of torturing her with a knife. Um, a lot of, of bruising around her arms as if she's being held down and there, they, there is what they call sexual inference. Now they don't really get into that. It doesn't necessarily say that there was sexual intercourse as a part of the crime. You can't really tease that out from, you know, whether she had sex with someone earlier in that night or anything like that, but her bra is off. It's bloody. And later they find the bra clasp somewhere else completely ripped off, which is also an important part of the evidence. But right off the bat, this sort of this crime scene evidence and the evidence of her body starts the theory of this group sex game gone wrong because they feel like people would have had to have hold her down and then she's being sort of tortured with this knife and she's naked. So this is automatically. And I'm not sure, you know, when you're talking about the nicking and and we're not CSI. No, no, we're not. But I, I what I am is a keen observer and educated observer of human behavior. And one of the things that I noticed in the, the documentary on Netflix is the British tabloid journalist. And I use the term journalist very loosely for this individual. He himself, I believe is the one that began the idea that those marks were taunting. Like Mm. someone had taken the point of a knife 
held it under her chin and made little nicks. Because what you hear over and over and you read over and over again, nicked as if she was being taunted or tortured. No one, there's nothing to back that up. There is no evidence whatsoever to back that up. There is, it could be just as likely that the individual who did commit this crime, which is very likely Gaday, who has been convicted for mm-hmm. it, held the knife to her chin. She struggled sure, and got the marks from struggling sure. and not complying with his demands. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then it goes horribly wrong. Right. But look at how that leaked into all of the contextual information about this trial and that reflected reflected back badly uh, on Amanda. They assume that she's involved and that this, she's the sex crazed Satanist. Right. I mean, it just it's bonkers. It's completely bonkers. It is. It's so from this point on, the way that it, you know, they're not even so much interested in her boyfriend except to get to her. But the way they completely villainize her being the foreigner in this situation. And whatever they think of us here in America, well, you know, it's like that was all funneled into absolutely. There's, you know, the anti-American sentiment at that time was very strong. (laughs) And look where we are again; it's come back. Yeah, you know, really one of the most tragic things about this, and this was written well about in Rolling Stone by Nathaniel Rich, is that less than a day after this incident, less than a day after Meredith is murdered, Meredith is pretty much forgotten, right? It is not about the loss of this young woman's life. It is about who did it. Yep. Um, And the, you know, what he calls Amanda as the accidental ingenue. Up until this time, Amanda was unaware of a lot of things about herself. She did not realize, and she talks about this in the, in the documentary, she did not realize that she's beautiful. You right. know, she's a heavy right. set outdoorsy girl, didn't wear makeup. She was, a you know, a rock climber, bike rider. Self-described all, as kind of quirky and quirky and, and, and dorky yeah. and someone and, and very smart, but not street smart. And here she comes to Italy and she's lost a little weight, and she actually is. Even at that time, she's elfin. She has this beautiful, yeah. almost ephemeral quality right. about her. These I mean, gorgeous blue eyes. Yeah, little heart-shaped face mm-hmm. with a pointed chin. There's so many pictures and times that I look at her back there. I'm like, oh my god, is that Jessica Biel? Like, it, oh yeah, she should have played her instead of uh, oh. Hayden Panettiere in the Lifetime movie. <laughs> Which I watched, I, by the way. I, I couldn't get through it. I couldn't get through it. That damn wig. All the wigs. The, There's that was a lot like of them. the worst wigs ever. It's a oh lot my. of crying and a lot of wigs. Yeah, a it's lot of crying hilarious. and a lot of like close ups of her leaning leaning against doorways for some reason. Yeah, like she's, yeah. You know, it's so close up that you can see the glue on the wig line on her oh, forehead. Hayden, Hayden, Hayden. I know. Well, she she came back and she got what she got Nashville after that. Right, right. So. That was post a. Anyways. <laughs> but yeah, I th- let's let's take a, a pause right here and say, okay, you're 20 years old. You are, you know, maybe everything how you described her. I mean, that's your average American girl at 20 years old, right? From the the lack of self confidence to the I want to jump into adulthood and go find myself. Maybe I can reinvent myself abroad, which she was being reinvented in ways she didn't know she wanted to be or didn't want to be. But the way the media and investigators were 
but you're 20, you're living abroad, you're trying to, you know, be this adult and your roommate gets brutally murdered when just by chance you're at your boyfriend's house that night. And that could have been her. Can you imagine the mind fuck that that, I, I don't even, and who knows what her background, if she had any trauma in her background, but when we start getting into just what headspace is she in and what her behavior is saying about her, I can't even imagine how I would start to process that. Well, look, I'd probably shove it down and just lean into my boyfriend. Probably. Yeah. And I remember, look, when all this went down and we were seeing it in 2007, 2007, I think I was in in my master's program. I, you know, and if Amanda, if you're listening to this, I owe you an apology on on behalf of myself and anybody else who was fucking stupid enough to take this stance. We owe you an apology because it was all about the cartwheel. Yep. It was all about the fucking cartwheel. That's what they kept saying on the news is her bizarre behavior while she was in the Italian police station and that she was cartwheeling and stretching and doing Mm -hmm. exercises. And now to actually dive into this and realize what was actually happening, exactly what you're talking about, an ordinary person taken into unbelievably extraordinary situations. And not only... That can happen to us here in the U.S., but she had two semesters of Italian. She could barely speak Italian. Right. They were... Better than I ever will, but... (laughs) Yeah, better than I ever will either. But yeah, not enough to be interrogated. The idea that during their interrogations, which, by the way, folks, are very different from American American interrogations, she was slapped upside the back of the head. Mm -hmm. She was screamed at. She was denied food. Now, look, not to, say that our, not to say that our techniques here in the U.S. don't use some form of that, but there's never hands-on. Right. Like, hands-on, not you're anymore. screwed. And this, you know, she didn't have the wherewithal to know what to do. And right. she fell into this classic equation of the coerced confession. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think when you and I were talking about this cartwheel scenario a few weeks ago, I'm glad you brought that up as being kind of the piece that we all took away from it here in America, because I was a hundred percent sure that I had actually seen video footage of the police lobby with her doing cartwheels. Now, if that doesn't go towards showing you how our brain creates these scenarios and memories and kind of the Mandela effect, if you will, of, oh yeah, I remember seeing that. It it must have happened. I I have a memory of seeing it from a black and white CCTV from that angle, but I've created it because I can't find it. No, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So the, or if it exists, folks, please let us know and send us a clip of it. But (laughs) but we haven't been able to find it. No, no. And it, it kind of weaving into this, if it did exist and if she did a cartwheel, who gives a shit? What the fuck point? does it matter? Who cares? A 20 year old under extreme duress completely. Like we've talked about in our previous episodes where we've talked about depersonalization yep. or, um, dissociative events. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if, it, so this was supposed to have happened when one night, well, the night that they actually break in the interrogations, they start by calling Raffaele in for an interview and she just happens to go with him because he's gone to support her when she's been called in. So she's sitting in the lobby and as the police 
relay this. She got up, did some stretches, and then the guy sitting behind the counter at the police station says, oh, you're really flexible. And she says, oh, yeah, and does some other stuff and, like, does the splits and does the cartwheel. And then supposedly three other witnesses walk in and see this, but they're all police um, employees. Meanwhile, so. Raffaello is getting interrogating and uh, interrogated by is McGinney involvement by this point or is it another? Um, I think so. Either him or the, the female lead investigator. And, and their remember. line of, of narrative is your girlfriend is a whore. She's yep. a slut. She's she does this. not she's, care about you. Yeah. Um, it, th- this is going to be bad for him that he, um, he then, you know, through a series of all this from it, it, with both of them, you know, goes from, I'm so confused. I'm so scared. I don't know what I remember now to him saying, you know what? She did leave around nine o'clock. She told me to lie. She was back at like 1am. I don't know where she was at. And then boom, they can pull her into a room and now say, this is what your boyfriend's saying, which, so which fits into such a, an absolute wet paper bag narrative as well of I'm going to leave my boyfriend's house, Mm -hmm. go home for an hour to engage in a satanic sex orgy and kill my roommate, then come back. Yeah. Fall asleep. And yeah, you know, yeah. So, so they're bringing her in. They engage in the interview where they then break her down with some, some physical punishment. Um, there's even one like lost in translation moment where she's saying like, what the fuck? Like what is going on? And one of the interrogators goes, Oh, you're saying fuck you to me. Oh, I know the word fuck. You're saying fuck you. And it just gets so antagonistic. And anyway, you know, through sleep deprivation and all of that, she, and that misunderstanding and the text text, go tell about the text message. So they tell her, no, your text message literally means that you were going to go meet up with Patrick later. So did you meet up with Patrick later? And this is because where... Because it said, see you later. Right. Which is an American colloquialism for, see you later could be, I'll see you in a month. Right. And she actually had seen him in the following days, you know, stopped right. into the bar. Um, and this was following him saying, you don't need to come into work tonight. Thanks so much. See you later. Yep. Yep. Oh my gosh. So then she then starts saying, maybe I did leave. Maybe I did meet up with Patrick. And boom, they end up taking her, Raffaele, into custody. And then they go out and they arrest Patrick as well. So this is where the media frenzy really starts. Right. So... Look, and I'm going to read a quote from the Rolling Stone article because I think I think this is written so well. <clears throat> when an attractive young woman from a privileged British family is murdered in Italy, you've got a popular crime story. When the person suspected of killing her is an attractive young woman from a privileged American family, you have tabloid gold. When the prosecutor hypothesizes that the victim was slaughtered during a satanic ritual orgy, you've got the crime story of a decade. When a sitting U.S. senator declares that the case raises serious questions about the Italian justice system and asks if anti-Americanism is to blame, and when 11 Italian lawmakers in Silvio Berscaloni's coalition request a probe of the prosecutor's office, well, at that point, you have an international crisis. So I, I just love that quote because what he's doing is he's talking about how Amanda was fucked at every turn. 
just the evolution of it. That's, the evolution. And also, like, let's talk about, you know, the, the senator who decides the case raises some questions. You know, that was incredibly incredibly irresponsible of that senator to not think that that was going to make it worse. There's ways of addressing it without fanning the flames, which is exactly what happened. Right. Cause so, you're always going to go, Oh really? Which is exactly what happened. And you see in these clips from the documentary, there was so much anti-American sentiment. Oh my gosh. They were, they oh, were, wait, my this favorite. was the biggest thing that had happened in Perugia, except for that, the serial killer in the middle ages. Right. Right. So the attorney, for Rudy Gaudet, my favorite quote in this is he's saying, Perugia in 1301 is where our criminal justice system started. Americans were still drawing on caves when that happened. <laughs> it's like, well, true. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> there's some things true about it, but like... Uh, We're a very young country. We know that. <laughs> true, and, and it's true, but you know, that also, I, I truly believe that Gaudet's attorney... For one thing, he seemed just eternally pissed that he was being interviewed. So you know, know. what, dude? You don't want to get talked to? Then don't come on this. And don't. And he was incredibly pissy. He was pissy because his client was clearly guilty. Yeah, that's a tough case to take, I'm yeah. sure. And, you know, let's also talk about, like, how... If we're going to talk a little bit about the Italian justice system. Maybe it's not like this in every place in Italy. But one of the things that the writer talks about, what we see in the American system is there is the what we call the black robe effect of the judge. And the judge rules the courtroom when he says there's no talking, then there's no talking. When he says, all rise, all seat, then all rise, all seat. We have a protocol here that is actually very rarely uh, broken. And when it is broken, we hear about it because that makes news. If somebody is weeping and wailing, that's not the way these were. The Italian courtrooms are like circuses. Uh All of the, the press are in the back and they're yammering. And you can't even uh, like it's like sardines packed in they're there. They're all packed in there. They're packed there. I mean, it looked like a complete fire hazard by the way. <laughs> but also like the all of the attorneys are screaming at each other and they're screaming at the judge and they're screaming and pointing fingers at all the, the defendants and gesticulating wildly through the whole right. process. It's a circus. It is. They they don't even they also have like the civil trial attorneys there, it's all going on at the same time. So the criminal prosecutors can question the civil, you know, that are representing the, the family of the victim. Maybe it's very messy, but the, the media, they, some of the headlines were just so disgusting. They're awful. And they're just awful. they they were trolling Amanda and Raffaele's MySpace pages to pull pictures off of there that made them seem violent. Like there's a picture of her. There were Halloween costumes. <laughs> I know. Not, he, not Raffaello was dressed up as a mummy holding uh, a, a butcher knife. Right. He was for a Halloween party. And then there was a picture. Well, let's, let's also break it down further. There's a picture of her on her MySpace page on a, looked like a museum tour. Yes. Next to an antique anti-aircraft gun. Right. So she's posing beside the anti-aircraft like gun. Like she's firing like it. Like she's firing it. She's inside. It's inside a museum. It's not uh-huh. pointed at anything. Right. And she's got a smile on her face. 
And the way it is portrayed, they don't call it a museum anti-aircraft gun. They call it a machine gun. Yes. So that becomes part of the popular vernacular is that these wicked pictures of her grinning wildly with a machine gun. Yes. So it's like she's Patty Hearst or something. Oh, God. I know. Um, I think... Sorry, Patty. We know you had (laughs) Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Poor Patty. Poor Patty. But spinning it, you know, not only as like this satanic piece, which we'll talk about where that came from, um, but this this is what really got to me when they called it this sexy girl on girl crime. Yeah. Now this is this is not a you know a, a porn video you're trying to get so many people to go watch. This is a murder of a young woman, and to to spin it as something sexy. By labeling it girl on girl is just horrendous. Yeah. Eventually, the crime scene forensics come back, and Rudy Gaudet's prints are all over Meredith's bedroom. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to laugh. I mean, it. his prints are everywhere. There's, his... there's no trace of Amanda, <laughs> so she's really good at cleaning up or just kind of like you know, morphed in there, shape-shifted in there, and then left. Yeah, this this person who has a reputation for being incredibly messy and right? has, to be re- has to be reminded to flush the toilet. All of a sudden, Suddenly, she's, she's this mastermind, and yeah. I, it, it's just a travesty. It, it's an ongoing travesty of justice. So, strangely enough, right after the murder, G'day leaves the country. So, he's in, like, Germany or something. They end up tapping his phones once his prints come back, and he is talking with a friend and obviously it's all in the media and he's telling his friend that he met Meredith the night before that he didn't do it but Amanda was not there that night so he's clearing her in these statements to a friend but also not admitting to the crime himself but even so that's very interesting that the thing that this guy does because this is also another aspect that is pointed out in one of the FBI evaluators, an ex-profiler who was asked to look at this. First of all, he said Amanda wasn't there. Right. This is another, and we also forget this guy. This is this guy Rudy Gaudet, who is an African national or of African extraction, mm-hmm. who lives in Italy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he is only 20 years old himself. Right. He's a 20-year-old young man who has uh, a spotted reputation in that area because he breaks in because he actually has been sexually inappropriate mm-hmm. with women before mm-hmm. in the community. Right. And but there's an underlying, I don't know, moral compass or something where he's like, "Uh, man, it didn't have anything to do with it. What are you yeah. talking about?" Yeah. You know, that it reminds me of that documentary now take off on thin blue line called the eyes don't lie where basically the killer is basically just giving them all this information, but they've decided they're going to pin it on the person that they don't like, right? you know, and that's a completely humorous fictional narrative, but this is what's going on here is let's pin it on this because the witch, they keep calling her, you know, the Strega, you know, the vampire killer, the satanic killer, it just crazy ass headlines that they make up. Yeah. That's really interesting that 
if if it is this sort of moral compass and that's why he's bringing it up. Uh, I, you know why? You know, okay, here's why I said that. I'm so sorry. I was going to say, I lean towards a different theory, but go ahead. Well, maybe. I'll, but I'm just, because building on what the profiler said, which is so interesting, is that looking at the crime scene photos, he said one of the dead giveaways is the killer tried to staunch the blood because there were bloody towels around, like as right. if... Meredith's throat, throat had been cut, and then there was this, oh, my God, what has happened? Oh, shit, what did I do? Trying to staunch the blood or clean up the blood, and then remorse is actually reflected because the body is covered by a comforter. That's right. a big giveaway yeah, in is. a crime scene investigation. Right. They, it shows remorse it shows of some remorse, kind. Um, and that they are humanizing the victim at least again, you know, maybe... Not in the moment, but that they kind of, like you said, that oh shit moment. Which And, and not wanting to look at that. Right. So, and, and, and actively not looking at that. And as someone who, I mean, one of my areas that I'm fascinated by is alternate religions and the occult and the intersection between, supposed intersection between crime and the occult, which is, there's actually not that much of, as much as people like to think that there is. On one hand, they're trying to make this, this, this satanic ritual which means that would have been splayed for everyone sure. to see because that's the whole point is that you're showing that this in the name of whatever evil I'm committing, I'm, I'm claiming this crime. Right. Well, here's what we saw, which was opposite of that is someone that was humanizing his victim and realizing there's a yeah. mistake here. I have some, I mean, as weird as it sounds, some respect for the victim. Right. Right. And if this was, you know, outside of the norm of what he normally does and very opportunistic, his first kill, if you will, you think the first one is going to rattle him more than if he had been doing this regularly. Yeah. Regularly. Um, so I was going to say some alternative theories to wanting to, um, say that Amanda was not a part of it for, maybe the the route of the psychopath or the narcissist is they want credit for their work. They don't want someone else to take credit for their work. Now, I, I, after True. what you just said, I don't think that's the case. No, but, but, but it, is a, it is plausible from what we do. I mean, right. the only thing that tempers that is that that would usually come from someone who was a seasoned killer, a seasoned criminal, and that's not going to be somebody at right. eight, 20 years of age who's been like a low-level you know, Being a low level break and entering guy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So he eventually gets extradited, gets arrested. Um, they let Patrick go because he has an alibi. They quickly realize wrong guy. And that's Lumumba, the, yes. the club owner. Yeah. Amanda's boss. God, talk about somebody that got screwed. Oh my Ooh. God. Can you imagine how scared he was? Yeah. And so, you know, there's no mention of this Gaudet guy in Amanda's story. Things are not adding up. You got some physical evidence that's backing up that Gaudet was there, but you have this crazy confession, if you will, of Amanda's, this muddied confession that has the wrong person there. So I don't know. I think at this point... And it continues to blow up that it wasn't just Amanda and it had to be it had to be another person and then it had to be two other people because mm-hmm. what they were trying to do was they were trying to keep Patrick Lumumba and Raffaello 
all involved with Amanda in this yeah. bloody murder. Right. And then they had to create that McGinney had to create this absolutely bonkers fucked up narrative that then was animated by a like a like Jap- a twenty minute like animation. a Japanese or a Korean yeah. uh, television news agency. Oh, crazy. So do you do you want to talk a little bit about um, McNeeny and where his theories likely stem from, what he was sort of into and obsessed with? Yeah, you know, for those of you who've watched the documentary, it's pretty clear that that McGinney, the sort of elder statesman of Perugia, the uh, prosecuting attorney, and then I, I believe he's now a judge, which just is mind-boggling yeah, that he's been shifted in that is. position. McGinney was really the individual who drove the narrative of Amanda being the murderer of Meredith Kirchner. And he did so. Oh, let me back up. I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that's, that's very interesting about McGinney is he talks in such a self-assured manner. The guy barely, I think he speaks not even a little bit of English. Right. So there are subtitles in this and you see, a. Uh, a portly, elderly man, very intense, very self-confident. And everything that he's saying about trial process and investigation is so well thought out and confident. Like he really exudes that he's the kind of, he's an individual who's been doing this a long time. From watching the documentary, I... I, everything that you're saying rings true to where I'm like, this is the investigator I want on a case like this until, until it takes, until it takes just a complete right hand turn into lunatic village Sure, because he's a conspiracy theorist. He comes from a very, obviously a very heavily Catholic nation. Um, right. one of the comments, comments he says in an interview later on is I do believe in Satan. I do believe in, you know, the physical manifestation of evil. I mean, this guy, he's coming from a place where this is what he believes. And which is frightening because like you were saying earlier, there was no evidence to back up anything that he was saying. And yet he kept churning out these what if stories as if we're watching as if we're watching, as if we're watching History Channel with one of the alien investigators. Yes. Well, what if right. aliens, or what if? And th- except that McGinney's not even saying what if. He's saying that it is that it happened, and has absolutely no remorse for the fact that his his facts don't have any ground. Right. So going back to the Rolling Stone article, I want to read another quote that I think is incredibly well written and helps you understand. I almost wish I had read the article before I watched the documentary. And so I'm going to start reading out. <clears throat> it was at the police station that Knox met the man who would become her chief antagonist for the next four years, Giuliani Mignini, the prosecutor who would oversee the murder investigation and eventually Amanda Knox's trial. A native Perugian, he wears smartly tailored jackets that cling snugly to his inflamed, bullish frame. A pair of spectacles rests low on the wide bridge of his nose, beneath his broad forehead and powerful, gleaming eyes. McNini is seen by Knox's supporters as a blustering maniac whose bullying reduced Knox to tears on the stand. But, in person, he more closely resembles the benevolent caretaker of a rustic pensione, casual, kind, eager to amuse, an intent listener. 
He presents himself as the model of moderation. When I ask him today about whether he thinks Knox is evil, he says that nobody is all good or all bad. He wishes she were innocent. He did not enjoy putting a young girl in prison, but it was his duty. In private conversation, Mignini always seems to want to know very sincerely your opinion. And then, when you are done, he will patiently explain to you how things in fact are. As it turns out, in his view, things are often touched by Satan. He detected Satan's influence as early as 2001, when he became a central figure in the Monster of Florence serial killer case. Mignini proposed that the suicide of a Perugian doctor was actually a murder committed by a satanic cult, practicing since the Middle Ages, that demanded human organs for their black masses. He later accused a hostile journalist of Satanism and was convicted of abusing his office. In the early stages of the Kirchner investigation, Mignini suggested that the victim had been slaughtered during a satanic ritual, but in his closing argument, he only went went so far as to refer to Knox as a sex and drug crazed she-devil. So he likes to mansplain about Satanism? What the fuck? So he just carries that narrative throughout whatever high-profile case he's investigating. That must explain it, because what, doing real investigative work is too hard? Uh, (laughs) Yes, all of of that and more. Uh, And frightening. And to think that, you know, that's probably not too far afield from some lawmakers we have here in the u.s this this, guy's just a little i mean he's such a narcissist obviously we've talked about in the past right he's hitting all of this sort of grandiosity and absolute assuredness of his of his convictions and his uh perspective on things which he then refuses to be swayed by evidence that's in front of him right that's frightening it it's terrifying I mean, satanic panic is like three decades old now. Come yeah, on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to know more about that just in the country overall and sort of culturally. How different is he and how, you know, sort of off the radar is he from other investigators? I think probably quite. So I would think so. I would um, not, I wouldn't. And and that's not what I'm trying to say either. I don't think that he's the norm, No, but he is, as they say in the documentary and in several of the articles, he is the hero of Perugia. Like he has, he's born there. Like he, you know, they walk down the the street. Yes. And people come up to him and he has this hero worship. He's definitely a very, very big fish in a, in a small pond. For sure. So with the trials, they actually end up trying G'day first and separately from Amanda and Raffaele. Um, He is quickly found guilty and gets 30 years in prison. So how it should go. And that's where the story should end. (laughs) But Amanda and Raffaele are tried together. They, after a very intense trial are both found guilty. Amanda gets 26 years. Raffaele gets 25 years. And it it's devastating. And uh, we also have to remind, remind at this point that even though the narratives have not been connected together and G'day has said Amanda has no involvement in this, we have to remember that they both signed confessions. Right. They signed confessions under duress. This is a thing that happens. And I I doubt it's any of our listeners 
I just doubt it's any of our listeners because I, I think that if you're interested in this stuff, you realize the complexity of sitting in the gray and having to tolerate different perspectives that may be completely different from your own personal bias. But if you go on the comment section of any discussion board, you'll see some very concrete people who go, no, this is the way it is Mm -hmm. and refuse to see anything else. They can't see outside that. I would never sign a confession if I didn't. I would never do it. It's like, no dude, let's put you through 24 hours or 48 hours of not eating and not sleeping, not sleeping and being physically assaulted. And you're in a, you know, start to confuse nights of the week. And maybe I did leave and you are promised you're going to get to go home. Sure. Which, and also it should be said that a general technique of one of police is that police will go in and say, this is how I think it happened. Mm-hmm. Let me run this by you. Uh-huh. And then they run it by again and again and again. And here's the thing. 95% of the time, police don't go in there until they already know right. that that's exactly what happened. Right. This was a case where they didn't. didn't. It's like the FBI. Like, by the way, folks, if, you, if anybody's wondering, if the FBI show up at your door... They only show up because they've done 99% of their work. You're screwed. Absolutely. It does not happen any other way. Yeah. I remember my husband was working a task force with the FBI and he's like, we have done so many drug buys. Why cannot we just arrest them? No, we need to do a few more drug buys. And he's like, Jesus, like, <laughs> we got it. Let's just do it. But now, but you understand like, and that's what, that's why, especially in, in our current political climate, when we're, when there are certain elements in our uh, federal administration that are trying to make the FBI look bad. Boy, that's that's going to bite you in the ass long term because these guys know what they're doing. Well, and and they have women all the too. money and resources exactly. in the world so they can throw everything at it. Anyway. They're found guilty. They have already been held in custody for, a, you know, about a year up until the trial. Um, so they, they end up going to prison and then a year later, which would be three years after the murder. So in 2010, their appeals trial starts. Right. So this to me is, is the most, you know, important and interesting part of all the, the trials and the court goings on is that due to lots of controversy and the high profile nature of this and good work on Amanda and Raffaele's attorneys, an outside agency, forensic agency affiliated with the university is asked to come in and re-examine all the forensic evidence. Oh God, that's a chilling scene oh, in the documentary. So at this point they were the, the forensics that they tried to say now connected them to the scene was that months, I don't know, let me say weeks. I don't know for sure how many weeks, but weeks after the initial examination of Meredith's room, they found her bra clasp underneath a rug and it had Raffaele's DNA on it. So this was a bra clasp that was torn, completely torn off of the bra. If you look at it. And it also had the DNA of two other unknown males on it. Um, but this was just magically found. 
And it's so interesting. He says in his book that when the the forensic crime analyst that collected that, when she was on the stand being asked about it, and I don't have the exact Italian phrase written down, but when they said, well, how do you explain that that was found there that, that much later and then you know, it has all this magic information attached to it? She said this phrase that in Italian translates to sort of um, these religious miracles where like saints can be seen in two places at once, just kind of like, well, it just appeared. And again, I mean, this kind of goes to, you know, the very thick religious veins that run through obviously this part of the country, but that people sort of hang their hat on rather than just the science. Because to me, I'm thinking they 100% planted his DNA on that and then shoved it under a rug and then, oh, let's go back and search. When, when it actually comes to even a more simple explanation right. later on, which is contamination of evidence. Absolutely. And, and did you, did we talk about, we didn't talk about the concept, but you brought this up when we first started talking about this case, which is Occam's razor. Oh, So yes. for those of you that aren't familiar with Occam's razor, now I'm going to let you explain it. No, 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 no. It. you go ahead. <laughs> well, basically, and I, I won't go into the, the history of it, but Occam's razor is the, would we call it a theorem or it's just a a philosophical point of that when you are confronted with a conundrum or a situation or a challenge, inevitably the simplest answer is going to be the most accurate. Does that... Does that yes. describe it? I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, so how it applies that has now talk about how it applies yeah, to this. So how, so what, what sounds more simple that this girl and her boyfriend and a third guy are hanging out at her apartment and she gets scolded and chastised by her roommate for being, you know, too much of a whore and having two guys over. And then they decide to teach her a lesson in this satanic sex ritual murder or that a guy known for breaking and entering into homes breaks and enters into the home and ends up killing this girl as a result of that crime. Which is also supported by, by forensic by, evidence. By forensic evidence. Yeah. So which is which is more elaborate, which is the more simple? So that's what Occam's razor theorem is is saying is that usually the simplest answer is the truth. Right. Or closest to which what happened. Which they completely decide to throw out. Which and this goes back to Gaday's defense attorney, you know, making his snark ass comment about Perugia having law in 1380 versus where America was in 1380. I was like, well, dude, it's not really working for you. Yeah. You haven't come that far. Yeah. I think our cave drawings were probably a lot more advanced at, you know, reasonably or relatively than your (laughs) law practice. Yeah, exactly. So the, the other huge piece of forensic evidence that, they were able to prove um, was due to cross-contamination was what they thought was the murder weapon. So they find a knife in Raffaele's apartment in his kitchen in a drawer, basically collect it as evidence. And Raffaele was there witnessing this when they went in, asked if they could look around. He says, yeah, of course. The Whoever it was, crime scene investigator, pulls up in a drawer and says, hey, will one of these do? Literally says that. Picks one at random puts it in a bag, puts it in a plastic bag, which you shouldn't be doing. You should be putting it in paper and then ships it off to the crime lab. So when in the appeals trial, when the, so what they said is that they found Meredith's DNA on the blade 
and they found Amanda's DNA on the handle. And Amanda's like, this isn't, this is a knife that maybe like, maybe I used it to cook dinner. I was dinner, cooking dinner or some, possibly. Yeah. But how, and she's like, did Raffaele take the knife and go murder her and come back? Like, this is crazy. This cannot happen. So in, in the appeals trial, when the outside investigators, forensic investigators look at this, the female, um, forensic scientist calls up the original lab and says, Hey, did you guys analyze this just by itself when it was analyzed? And the answer is, Oh, oh no. no, we were processing 50 pieces of marriage. We had a lot of stuff going stuff. on. Yeah. We're really busy. And that lab that originally did all this was not even approved or certified to do DNA. I mean, how it even <laughs> was done. Again, so, something that would not go on here. Right. Ever. And, I'm, and I'm sure most people would. Well, it, it did go on in the Peterson case. We talked about that before. There was cross-contamination. No, I mean to not be certified and still running DNA oh, tests. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. How are yeah. they even allowed to have the equipment? <laughs> that's what I want to know. I guess we're just going to start saying, it's Perugia. It's, per- it's a new saying. It's Perugia. A new, new saying. So, essentially, they determined that the, the amount of DNA on the blade of Meredith was so minute that it had to be attributed to cross-contamination and then learning that... Yes, they were processing all of this evidence of hers at the same time. Just wiped both of those totally clean to where there's nothing linking them. So based on this in the appeals trial, their conviction gets overturned and they're released. So Amanda gets to come home to Seattle and Raffaele gets released and gets to go back home. And Italy was pissed. Yeah. I mean, oh, the, just the, the clips of the people in the town square screaming profanities about Amanda, about Amanda yeah. are, are quite frightening and something certainly we can see in, in our divisive atmosphere now. Sure. But you can just see how easily people were led astray with this incorrect information. Oh, it ate it up. Absolutely. So in in 2013, which is now six years after the murder, an Italian court throws out the appeal release and finds them guilty again based on circumstantial evidence and Amanda, specifically Amanda's behavior in relationships. (laughs) I I don't know. I don't even know what to make of it. I don't... So... That happens. She she's still here in Seattle. She doesn't have to like be extradited or go back over there as they're continuing to fight this in court um, through attorneys. But finally, in 2015, eight years after the murder, the uh, another appeal trial, if you will, starts, and the highest court in Italy finally fully exonerates both of them. They acknowledge the flaws in the investigation and the media presence that played a part in skewing this completely. So, so I'm let, glad it was acknowledged. Yeah. And so, and, but let's also talk about, uh, the media influence. Yeah. One of the characters you get to meet when you're watching the documentary is, oh God, I keep blanking. I keep, uh, Nick Pisa, Nick Pisa. I, I block his name cause he made me so furious. Um, you're, you're introduced to Nick Pisa because he's one of the main people interviewed for, the documentary 
strikingly handsome, rugged looking guy of British. He's British, big square lantern jaw, you know, ir- iridescent blue eyes, great smile, charming as hell, and a bit of a moron. <laughs> Probably more than a bit of a moron. And not only a moron when I say of impaired intelligence, but also a complete lack of understanding for the carnage that he helped add to this situation because he time and time again was the person that just kind of like hapless half-assed reporter for a tabloid. And he lands in the middle of this and really, really works it to his advantage. I mean, at one point, Amanda's journals are are somehow leaked from prison. leaked from prison, and when he's asked directly about that, he gets a big grin on his face and says, "Well, I can't reveal my sources. That would be a, a breach of journalistic journalistic integrity." Which, which I get, this, but he is so gloating about it. I think it's his, his affect during the documentary that really gets me because it's such a slimy representation of what we think of of those types of journalists. Yeah. 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 I mean, he really, boy, he, he, you know, if you were going to cast someone as a a slimy journalist, that's weasels information out of people, right. It would be him. There's one point he says at the end of the day, I think you have to point a finger at the prosecution. And I remember thinking, no, no, you were the one who fanned the flames. You were the one who, you know, maybe he didn't write the headlines for the articles that were printed, but mm-hmm. he certainly didn't do anything to balance sure. the reporting of this. And that's all. Um, well, well, and when you have McNini's crazy obsession and his theories feeding the flames of flames of the media and vice versa, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It, it's no wonder that it got so out of control. Yeah, there's um, some really great stuff online, and and you know, if you, folks, if anybody wants to read further about this, we'll put some links in the show notes. Um, but what I would say is, as with all interesting cases, go past the third page of your Google search because there's some really wonderful stuff. One of the things that really got me worked up was when I went to a website called International Skeptics Forum. And I usually have great appreciation for skeptics forums because as someone who is really interested in sort of esoterics and alternative science, I'm always happy to see when people have healthy skepticism towards these kind of phenomenon. But in, in, this is a, a, a conversation thread which has to do in, with the Amanda Knox trial that was started back as early as um, 2008. And what you see is a great representation of people who have joined the skeptics forum because they think of themselves as critical thinkers and critical analyzers of sort of a gray area of phenomenon, which whether it's, you know, supernatural or UFOs or something. And here we are, this is the skeptics forum about, and this is about a legal proceeding. And yet some of the most dumbass responses of people saying, how guilty she is. And then you have these very reasonable responses by experienced attorneys going, uh, yeah, none of this adds up. None of this adds up. She's getting a raw deal. Everybody's getting a raw deal when somebody confesses and there's no evidence to the, you know, and by this time DNA was starting to come out to prove that there was cross contamination, that she was not there. And yet people were digging their heels in Mm -hmm. and, 
I, and it's I, like I, I kind of get when like investigators and prosecution digs their heels in because, you know, it's their reputation, it's their career. But the, just random people online, what does it matter to you? Why are you digging your heels in? Uh, you know, well, let's talk about that. I mean, I, I can certainly relate, you know, and have to, you know, certainly I'm influenced by social media and, you know, I, we all have to check ourselves before we repost articles because it might be from a yep. ridiculous source. And it's the idea of someone's disagreeing with you. So if you're in that defensive place of feeling like, I'm being dismissed. I'm not being heard. I am not being respected. And you're already in a forum or, uh, you know, sort of a, a, an environment you've created for yourself where you yourself are disinhibited Mm -hmm. because of the anonymity of posting online, then you're just going to dig your heels in and I'll, you know, so it's two sides that will never compromise or say, Oh, I see your point of view. They're just both digging in. Right. Because and as I was telling you before we started recording, I'm looking through all of these postings and it's, it's 15 pages of people making dumbass comments like this. And you'll see after nobody went back and none of them went back and said, Oh wow. Oh, Cross contamination. Yeah. 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 Cross contamination. Wow. That, that was really some bad investigation. Not one of them. What they wanted to do was they wanted to come and pee in their corner to try and, you know, claim territory emotionally and then skulk off with their tail between their legs. Hoping some podcast in the future will talk about it. (laughs) Hoping. Yeah. (laughs) Or not hoping. Right. You want to read some of their, uh, handle? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't. What were you thinking? We're we're not going to dox anybody (laughs) because I like, I actually really like the idea of people having discussions like this and questioning and sometimes, you know, people ask really good questions. I mean, what is the, who is the the Mara Murray case? Mm-hmm. That the online discussions about that I thought were fascinating. Oh like people really coming up with some amazing alternative. Right. But isn't that interesting? So here that's a case where a woman just absolutely disappears mm-hmm. off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. So there's this assumption of at least assumed innocence. And I'm not saying anything other than that. But like here's this poor woman who disappears and then with Amanda it's this uh, this you know witch of deception this satanic sexual uninhibited american evil american girl right you know they allowed that bias to come into right. what they're thinking Both of col- young college age girls that you know probably didn't make great decisions like all of us didn't do. They nicknamed her, nicknamed her Luciferina, the face, uh, the devil with the face of an angel. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So let's talk about what Amanda's doing now, or what she, kind of how it's progressed for her since she came back to the states. Before you do that run, run down, yeah, just yeah. quick rundown. Okay. So, like I said at the beginning, this is a fascinating case, but we're not analyzing. I'm not analyzing Amanda because I'm looking at somebody who went through, except that I hope that she's gotten the support and compassion and care that she needs. And anybody who goes through Mm -hmm. trauma like this, I Mm -hmm. hope that they get, I hope Raffaello has it as well. But as far as diagnosis folks, if you want to see some real clear examples of pure narcissistic, uninhibited ego, watch the documentary and closely watch Mignini. That is the voice of a narcissist. 
I mean, delusional, and and has some delusional qualities. He has accused other reporters of absolutely insane things. He has a particular hard spot against Americans. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's gone after an American author who wrote about a serial killer that existed during the Middle Ages. And McGinney, McGinney was incredibly incensed with him because he didn't go with his theory that it was a satanic cult that had been operating right. for hundreds of years. Right. So what we're, we're flipping the script a little bit on our regular narrative here in that the center of this case is two women, one who was brutally murdered and doesn't have enough focus put on her and her poor family that were also led by the media and the prosecution. Absolutely. We have the innocent Amanda Knox who, you know, is hopefully putting together her life again in a way that is, is meaningful for her, but we're flipping it so that the focus goes on the people who created this travesty. Sure. And I think it rests solely on Mignini and what's his face. I don't even want to think of what's his name again. Pisa, 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 Pisa work. <laughs> we'll say that. Well, that's why I think it's important to talk about what she's doing now, because I love this concept of post-traumatic growth where you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life or the trauma that you go through, that you can sort of take ownership of that and grow from it. And I think that's what Amanda has, has absolutely done. You know, she's not shoving this down and trying to move on, you know, sort of in a traditional way that we might think or expect someone to do or act and not embrace it almost. Um, so when she came back to Seattle, I thought it was really great because in, in 2014, a local paper in Seattle, offered her a job, actually reached out to her and said, Hey, do you want to come work for us? You can, you know, cover the local school play. And the editor, when, when questioned about this, I love what he said. He said, it doesn't matter what people say or think. The truth is that she's a West Seattle resident. She grew up here. Why not give her the opportunity to be an actual human being versus a celebrity? And just like you said, the support, I mean, from the beginning, just community support, like how lovely was that? Um, But she has devoted herself and kind of thrust herself into this world of journalism, but really devoting herself to the wrongfully accused. So the, the documentary on Netflix, which is just called Amanda Knox, came out in 2016. And then in 2017, she started hosting a series it's produced by vice media but it's, it was put out by broadly and it's called the scarlet letter reports and the only place i could find it right now is through their facebook page you can get all the episodes on there i'm sure it aired at some point maybe it was even on vice channel but she goes around and interviews other women who were just completely drugged through the mud through either social media or traditional media um, wow. What a great idea. It is a really eye-opening series that the, the non-physical violence against women is so alive and well. And it, it's scary, but I, I think And also, continues to be oh, in completely. our absolute day-to-day in our political arena. Sure. It just is amazing that idea that, you know, also the idea that 
the term witch hunt is just being used so much right now, which is directly, you know, that's so such a, a, a gendered conversation and such a, a an example of in deeply entrenched patriarchy, patriarchy and misogyny in our yeah. in our world. I, it's right. frustrating. But I, I again, I like that you know she is this this narrator, this host of this show who has the utmost empathy and can relate. Yeah. Um, and, and most recently, so she is the host of a podcast called the truth about true crime. And it's a companion podcast to the Sundance channel. Oh, wow. And so when they put out docu series or documentaries on true crime issues, there's then a podcast released with it. That's the companion piece. And she dives a little bit deeper into some of the details Good for her. So that's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's kind of neat. Um, and then I was I was telling you that prior to us recording that a couple of weeks ago it was really interesting because she posts on her Instagram page of um, her and I, I think her boyfriend or fiance at a murder mystery dinner and you know it's this old vintage and I think it's this kind of in sepia tones the image and her caption reads Victorian London, a priceless painting goes missing and the owner is found both poisoned and stabbed. And would you believe it? I, the countess of Lovelace, am accused also acquitted all in four hours, better than four years. And people lost their shit. Yeah. And thinking like how insensitive of her and how dare she, how dare she comment on her own experience (laughs) as an innocent, as a person, proven innocent by a somewhat kangaroo court, right? you know, come on. Right. Because she, she has her own experience and, you know, this is something all these years later that she writes. I don't think people can compartmentalize that. That doesn't mean she is making light of Meredith's murder. I mean, these two things exist at the same time. Well, and people, then I, on. once again, from a diagnostic standpoint, that is just more of an indicator of the underpinnings and motivations of the person who makes that comment than it is the person the comment oh, is sure. directed at. Yeah, absolutely. I would right. love to know, like when I hear a comment like, you know, a really harsh comment like that, I'd love it. Like, wow. You know what? Give me a couple of hours interviewing uh-huh. you and uh-huh. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what, what it is issue. you're so afraid of and pissed off about right. that you want to displace it onto someone else. Yeah. What, what's triggering inside of you? Well, you have to lash out like that. Exactly. And in the documentary, there's one scene that's, that's poignant and heartbreaking where Amanda says, and you know, you have to realize that in, if in when you look at me, I'm either a psychopath in sheep's clothing or I am you. Yep. Ooh, right. And each, it does. It gives me chills too, because it is so spot on and it makes people, it, it's a perfect what she's saying actually in a very nice way is that, you know, it's really hard for you guys out there watching me to sit in the gray with the possibility that I'm not actually either of these things. You have to, you're, you're in a place that's very concrete that either I'm a horrible, horrible person or, Oh shit, this could happen to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. And my last take home about all of this and, and talking about guilt and innocence, when is the last time you saw, Guilty people that got away with a murder sit down and be so transparent for a documentary. Right. <laughs> it doesn't 
doesn't happen. Right. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't. And that wouldn't fit any, that wouldn't fit any psychological profile except for maybe, you know, staircase Peterson. Right. If, right. If he is, if he is in fact guilty of it, which I don't know. Uh, but you know, he certainly exhibited that level of narcissism and need for attention and validation. Uh, you know, you don't see that here with Amanda at no, all. No, or Raffaele. I mean, no, just both or of Raffaele. Them I felt bad. <laughs> I felt bad that they had a clip of him picking his nose in the documentary. I was like, Aww. "You guys, stop the camera and let him say that over again." Like cute little Harry Potter. Raffaele. I know. Like, don't, don't <laughs> let him pick his nose on camera. All right. Well, that is it. We're so excited, you guys. If anybody's out there that's planning on coming to the True Crime Podcast Festival this summer, this July in Chicago, we would love to see you. Please let us know. Log on to our Facebook page. Reach us on Instagram. So Instagram, we're LA Not So Podcast. Twitter, we're LA Not So Pod. And as of this morning, as most of you have probably seen on our social media, we launched our YouTube channel. Yay! I don't know what's going to go on it yet, other yeah. than we we put our promo for the True Crime Podcast Festival up there. So tell us what you think about it. Scott wrote it. I wrote it. <laughs> it's not written that well. And I, I hopefully it'll be edited better in the future. No, but people love it so far. Hopefully we're going to be hoping to get a set up for some of our uh, podcast uh, episodes where we are broadcasting live on Facebook and also recording for visuals on YouTube if anybody wants to see our tired ass faces right during the weeknight right. when we're recording these. <laughs> uh, but other than that, please, if you head over to iTunes, give us a rating, show us some love with some words or some stars and subscribe and uh, let someone know about our podcast. That maybe yeah. that would be interested. You know what? If you're on any other forums, give us a mention if you think it's worth it. We hope it's worth it. Um, we'd love to get some new listeners as well as our wonderful listeners that continue to download. And give us your thoughts. Let us know what your ideas are for upcoming shows. Today's show actually came from some listeners yes. suggesting it. So we love that. Um, so we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. <laughs>